Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I will be speaking with Karen Berger, PharmD, BCPS, BCCCP, about the topic of ketamine for refractory status epilepticus. Dr. Krenberger is a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Weill Cornell Medical Center and is board certified in pharmacotherapy and critical care. She currently serves as the chair for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Clinical Pharmacy and Pharmacology Education Committee and the president-elect for the NYC Society of Health System Pharmacists. She is a pharmacy student coordinator at New York Presbyterian Hospital, as well as a preceptor to pharmacy students and residents in the Neurosciences Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Berger, before we get started, do you have any conflicts of interest to share? No, I do not. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, And before we kind of talk about ketamine, which is kind of a refractory second-line therapy for status epilepticus, I think it'd be helpful to just kind of go through some of the background of status epilepticus itself. So uh, maybe starting off with just a definition of what is the difference between a seizure and then status epilepticus? Sure. That's actually a really good question because... um, The definition of status has actually evolved over the years, and whereas in the past we've said that it's continuous seizures for maybe 30 minutes, now we have a much more stringent definition, and any continuous seizures for five or more minutes, or either clinical or electrographic, or recurrent seizure activity without recovery between seizures is technically defined as status. And then we can further subdivide refractory status as a patient who's received two AEDs, And that's typically a benzodiazepine and one additional AED. So when we talk about these anti-epileptics or AEDs, what are some of the agents that are commonly given to kind of meet the criteria to progress to refractory status epilepticus? There's not a specific definition, but the guidelines do provide recommendations based on those that have been uh, more commonly studied. Phosphenatoin, phenytoin, levetiracetam, Valproic acid and phenobarbital are by far the most commonly used AEDs, but drugs such as lecosamide are also gaining favor. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is we have different tiers almost of status epilepticus. And what we're talking about is five minutes of seizure activity or going back into seizures without kind of recovery period. And that's status epilepticus. And then if we give an, a benzodiazepine and at least one anti-epileptic drug and the patient continues to seize, then we call that patient refractory status epilepticus. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And you can see that it's actually pretty easy to meet the criteria of refractory status epilepticus because when you're seizing, we're generally going to give you these drugs sequentially, so the benzodiazepine and anti-epileptic. And if you're still seizing after that, then you're already in refractory status. We can also sort of further define super refractory status where you continue seizing even past either additional anti-epileptics or continuous infusion uh, medications. So I know, at least in my clinical experience, I've commonly seen that a benzo will be given for a seizure, it continues into status epilepticus, an anti-epileptic is given, and then commonly what I'll see instead of as a continuous infusion, I'll see a second or even a third anti-epileptic given. What what do the guidelines kind of say in terms of reaching for more anti-epileptics versus going more for a continuous infusion? So we don't have great guidance on anything past that first anti-epileptic, unfortunately. A lot of times we'll use intubation status as a marker for whether you're going to get a continuous infusion versus that second anti-epileptic. So we're always going to give a benzo first, the first anti-epileptic, 
Sometimes if the patient's not intubated, we may elect to go ahead and give a second antiepileptic to perhaps save intubation. If they're already intubated, I think I think that the benefits of the continuous infusion are there, and that's probably what should be utilized. But you can always concomitantly add another antiepileptic while initiating your infusion. Okay. And then I guess we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We've just talked about benzo kind of in quotation marks. What kinds of benzodiazepines are typically given as kind of the emergent rescue therapy for seizure patients? There's three benzodiazepines that are uh, most commonly used, and those are lorazepam, midazolam, and diazepam. Intravenous lorazepam is the preferred benzo and route of administration. Midazolam IM has been compared to lorazepam IV, and so in patients who don't have IV access, it's completely appropriate to use IM midazolam. And then for some patients, primarily children, rectal diazepam is also an option. And I know in kind of the, the context of time that we have here, certainly we could just talk about status epilepticus or even, you know, some of the antiepileptics. But I know in speaking to you before this, you know, one of the things that you wanted to talk about is that more severe status patient. Why don't we kind of talk about some of those continuous infusion medications that are given to that more severe patient, almost certainly the intubated status epilepticus patient. What are some of the agents that you are reaching for as a continuous infusion for those patients? Well, in the United States, we have three main options, midazolam, propofol, or pentobarbital, and in Europe, you might see thiopental. Typically, midazolam or propofol are go-to agents. When we're using these drugs for status, the dosing we're going to use is completely different from sedation dosing. These are scenarios where we're going to bolus, we're going to start a weight-based continuous infusion, and we're going to very aggressively titrate. And with each titration, we're going to make sure to continue bolusing. And so I would say for example, with propofol, this is um, the one time where bolusing is actually warranted, although not always necessarily mandatory. Okay. Well, why don't we start with midazolam as a first agent? You mentioned more aggressive dosing. So can you give the audience kind of an idea of what would be a normal dose and then what would be your status epilepticus dose for midazolam? Sure. So I think when we're talking about sedation, we're thinking about somewhere in the range of 1 to 5 or maybe 1 to 10 milligrams per hour. When we dose midazolam for status, we're actually dosing in mg per kilo per hour. And so we're giving a bolus of 0.2 mg per kilo and 0.2 mg per kilo per hour to start. And so if we just make it easy and take a 100 kilo patient, we're talking about a 20 milligram bolus and 20 milligrams per hour as a starting dose. And we're going to aggressively titrate up on that drip. Some institutions will go up to 2.9 mg per kilo per hour. 2.9 milligrams per kilogram per hour? That's correct. Wow, that's quite a bit of midazolam. I would guess then that that would be the reason why you're not selecting lorazepam then is because of that aggressive dosing? That's correct. Uh, midazolam is preferred because it doesn't contain propylene glycol. So although we do have to worry about an active metabolite that can accumulate, particularly in patients with renal failure, we don't have to worry about propylene glycol toxicity and the metabolic acidosis that can ensue. So then if we're picking something like midazolam, I think most listeners are probably assuming that the midazolam is given for sedation for the mechanically ventilated patient, but really that's not the therapeutic goal at all in this case, right? That's correct. And so whereas for other indications, you may write midazolam as a continuous infusion with titratable parameters. When we order this for status epilepticus, we're going to order a non-titratable dose where each dosage change will require a review of the continuous EEG or the clinical picture uh, with a rewrite of the order to emphasize that. 
Excellent. So then, at least from my point of view, the midazolam seems like the the easiest option with the lowest toxicity. In what scenario might you consider propofol or pentobarbital for these patients? So technically, midazolam and propofol are really considered um, both first-line continuous infusions. I do agree with you that we tend to lean more towards midazolam, really because of the risk of propofol-related infusion syndrome that we can see with high doses and extended use of propofol. And we already know that when we're starting a patient on continuous infusion medications for status, that we're probably going to be very aggressive with the doses, and they may have to be on the infusion for hours, days, or perhaps weeks. In cases where midazolam has failed, usually propofol is going to be our next agent. Okay. So really, in, at least in your shop, midazolam is continuous infusion number one, and then propofol would be for a midazolam failure then, right? Yes. The one other time I would say we might lean towards propofol is because we're very comfortable with it and have easy access to it. So if we're uh, potentially waiting for a midazolam drip to be made up, we may just start with propofol because of its availability in the unit. Okay. Well, that makes sense. What kind of doses are you using with propofol? And then how does that compare to more traditional mechanical ventilation sedation doses? So the guidelines do say that you can bolus one to two mg per kilo of propofol and actually go up to 200 micrograms per kilo per minute. Uh, We tend to not really exceed 100 mics per kilo per minute, and we may or may not bolus. Usually uh, propofol does have a really fast onset of action, And so we can go either way, depending on the patient's hemodynamic status. Okay. And then, you know, at at least in my shop, something like 10 to 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute would be a more typical propofol dose. Is that kind of what you've seen outside of status epilepticus for your shop as well? Yeah, that's what we see too. So essentially at doses potentially all the way up to double normal, certainly we're going to start worrying about some side effects. And what what are some of the big ones that are more common? And then I know you mentioned press. Maybe you can just briefly touch on that as well. Sure. So propofol-related infusion syndrome is really the big one we worry about with propofol. And patients can become hyperkalemic, have a metabolic acidosis. And unfortunately, once uh, you recognize PRIS, a lot of times it's irreversible. This is something that's very uncommon and was more commonly actually reported in children, but it's very hard to predict who's going to get PRIS other than the fact that they're receiving high doses for extended periods of time. So then what are some of the hallmarks of PRIS that you might look out for? You mentioned hyperkalemia. Um, What are some of the other ones? We also tend to trend CPK and lactates. I'm not really sure how predictive those are of patients actually developing PRIS. I think the thing that um, we look at the most is an unexplained metabolic acidosis. And certainly if we see that, we'll go ahead and use an alternative agent. Okay. And then in terms of less rare, I would assume that you're looking at triglycerides for these patients. Do you see a lot of hypotension when you're giving these larger doses? We definitely see hypotension, and uh, more so with propofol than midazolam. We often have to use vasopressors in order to maintain appropriate maps for these patients. And then, like you said, we do monitor triglycerides. We don't have uh, a finite stop, but certainly as the levels go greater than four or 500, we'll consider using an alternate agent. And I would assume based on your criteria that propofol is kind of only in the case of a midazolam failure, I would assume that Um, pentobarbital would be in the case of, let's say, a propofol or a midazolam failure then? That's how our institution uses it. And I think nationally, um, midazolam and propofol are sort of our go-to agents. And then pentobarb is reserved more for those midaz or propofol refractory cases. 
So maybe you can explain a little bit more about pentobarbital, why it's kind of made its way to this almost third or fourth line therapy for status epilepticus. Sure. I think pentobarb, uh, when you're giving somebody pentobarbital, there's similarly to propofol, but actually more so, there's a lot of hemodynamic instability. And so whereas patients who are on propofol or midazolam may need a presser, patients who are on pentobarb may have complete cardiovascular collapse and require multiple pressers. There's also the risk of metabolic acidosis. And as sort of a side note, patients who are coming to this very refractory state may end up being candidates for a brain death exam. If a patient's on pentobarb and, and the drug has built up, it actually becomes very difficult to perform this exam because you'll have detectable pentobarb levels for days and even weeks after you stop the infusion. So it must have a very long half-life then to have such a prolonged kinetic profile. With extended use. Okay. And then is that something that you're titrating up and down or is the pentobarbital a fixed dose that you're giving? Similarly to midazolam and propofol, you would bolus the pentobarbital and titrate it up according to continuous EEG. So even though we can get pentobarbital levels, they're not recommended in status because we really should be titrating the medication to either burst suppression or seizure suppression on the continuous EEG. So I know that based on what you just said, it would make sense that these patients should be at an institution with continuous EEG capability, and if not, they probably should be transferred to a place with that capability then. I would agree with that statement for sure. So then we've kind of covered midazolam, propofol, pentobarbital. Do we have good comparative data between these three in terms of, certainly we can pick based on side effect profile and efficacy on a per patient basis, but do we have comparative data for these kind of refractory or super refractory patients? So nothing in a prospective randomized manner, but there are a few studies that attempted to compare propofol and pentobarbital. There was a nice systematic review that was published actually looking at pentobarb, propofol, and midazolam. And um, while they showed that pentobarb was actually associated with less short-term treatment failure and breakthrough seizures, more patients that were on pentobarb actually received continuous EEG monitoring and probably more aggressive titration. Also, the midazolam infusion that was looked at in that study was pretty low at 0.2 mg per kilo per hour, which is pretty much a starting dose. What we also saw was that pentobarb was associated with more hypotension requiring vasopressors. So even though there was less short-term treatment failure, there was really no difference in mortality and maybe more side effects. And so because of that data, it makes it difficult for us to know which is really the agent of choice. There was also more recently a study that was published just looking at outcomes that are associated with status epilepticus. And when they looked at different markers that were predictors of poor outcome, they saw that being in a therapeutic coma was one of the predictors. So this is a treatment modality that we often use. And obviously the study had a lot of bias because probably sicker patients are, are going to be put in a therapeutic coma. But it does certainly question just because we get the patients out of status doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have good outcomes afterwards. And, and just thinking about the three drugs that we've been speaking about for the past few minutes, midazolam, propofol, and pentobarbital, I mean, at their core, they all kind of share a similar mechanism in the sense of potentiating GABA. Aside from the side effect profile, is there any reason to suspect that there would be an efficacy difference between them? Not necessarily, no. People think of pentobarbital as being a barbiturate, so some people think of that as being perhaps stronger agent, and propofol does have some NMDA antagonist properties, although much less than its GABA activity. But clinically, in the outcomes data, we haven't really seen a difference. 
And then what can you tell me about kind of what we do know about the GABA receptors within this patient population, which again is our drug target? Well, one of the things that we know that happens in status epilepticus is this concept of receptor trafficking. And so with continued seizures, GABA receptors are internalized and subsequently destroyed. And so you have less available GABA receptors for your medications to work on. In contrast, the NMDA receptors are mobilized to the synaptic membrane. So as a result of trafficking, the number of functional NMDA receptors per synapse increases, whereas the number of functional GABA receptors decreases. Well, that's really interesting because it, it would almost seem like if we only had a drug that could block NMDA receptors that we might have kind of a novel mechanism to kind of fight this GABA receptor trafficking then. Well, that, uh, that is a great segue and has led to um, a very hot topic in status epilepticus because we do have such a drug. What, what would that drug be? <laughs> so ketamine, which I think now has really become a hot topic for a number of different indications, uh, is an NMDA receptor antagonist. And based on this receptor trafficking, later on in status, as you start to see on therapy treatment failure, meaning patients who were previously well-controlled on midazolam, propofol, or pentobarb, now having breakthrough seizures, there's a lot of interest in perhaps using ketamine for its NMDA receptor antagonist properties. So I would imagine that much of the audience would be familiar with midazolam, propofol, maybe less with pentobarbital, but even though ketamine is kind of a hotter topic, I, I would suspect that it would be worthwhile to kind of review some of the basics of what is ketamine um, and some of the nuances of ketamine. So given that it's an NMDA antagonist, what is one of the reasons why it's become a hotter topic? Where are you seeing it kind of off-label um, before we kind of get into the status epilepticus component of it? Sure. I think um, other indications that it's being used for are anesthesia, sedation, pain control. One of the benefits that it has for status is that it's very lipid-soluble and it has very low protein binding. And so that allows it to rapidly penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And because of that, it has a very fast, rapid onset of action of 30 seconds. So you can imagine that the various indications that you're using it for, such as seizure control, pain, and things like that, that would be a great benefit to have it start working so quickly. So Corinne, in terms of ketamine, I understand that we're going to talk about it for its use in status epilepticus based on that NMDA mechanism, but for some of the other indications where it's used, um, especially in some of these hotter topic areas, clinically, what is kind of seen when it's given and how does that differ from when it is used in status? So a lot of patients who receive ketamine um, at doses, for example, for pain, will see the onset rather quickly, and it does cause a dissociative anesthetic effect, whereby the patient may not necessarily know exactly what's going on or be aware of the surroundings. And when used for other indications outside of status, you may see more things like emergence reactions where the patients may even have hallucinations and things of that nature. And then how does that compare when you're using ketamine in this patient population for this kind of super refractory status epilepticus? So the use of ketamine in status, the way it's been studied, is actually as an add-on therapy. So first of all, it's studied for refractory and really super refractory status epilepticus. So the protocols in which ketamine was added, it was added to either propofol, pentobarb, or midazolam. Um, so our patients are already in a therapeutic coma and... Um, we would be happy to see an emergence reaction because that would mean the patient's actually waking up. But typically, that's not a side effect that we would see for our patients. Of course. Okay. And then given that it's 
fairly new and very off-label. I would assume that we don't have a wealth of data, but what, what data do we have for the use of ketamine for this kind of refractory status epilepticus patient? So I think one of the cool things is that um, certainly we don't have very high-level data supporting ketamine, but the data we do have is very encouraging. There was one study that was published in 11 patients who all had refractory status epilepticus. Seven out of the 11 patients were actually on vasopressors. And so when ketamine was given as an add-on therapy, as a bolus plus continuous infusion, most of the patients who were on pressors were able to be weaned off, and status was terminated in 100% of those patients, so all 11 patients. That's pretty impressive, right? I mean, when it's used as a sedative, it's pretty well known that it's either hemodynamically neutral or even can cause hypertension. So it seems like that's almost a great thing for someone on propofol or pentobarbital in particular, because that's kind of what we talked about, one of the problems with that drug therapy. Definitely. And also ketamine is our uh, only agent here that doesn't cause respiratory depression. So when we are able to titrate off of the other infusions, uh, the patient could, assuming they come out of status, potentially even be extubated while on the ketamine infusion. Okay. Uh, What other data do we have? Another study looked at 58 patients, but 60 episodes of status. And here they actually used higher doses. So they used a bolus starting at 1.5 mg per kilo, but up to 5 mg per kilo. And an infusion of, uh, and a median infusion of 2.75 mg per kilo per hour, but a max of 10 mg per kilo per hour. And what they found was that patients who were more likely to have a likely response or a positive response were on the higher infusion rates of 10 mg per kilo per hour and had a loading doses administered. And I think that that sort of speaks to if we are going to use ketamine, we should definitely be aggressive and, and push the dosing towards those the higher doses like 8, 9, or 10 mg per kilo per hour. So as a, a pharmacist, I feel like we have to talk about the dose of that just for a second. So where does something like 10 milligrams per kilogram per hour fit with when it's used for any of the other indications? So that's definitely on the higher end of the dosing range. I think that some institutions will have even order sets for anesthesia or um, some anesthetic doses and then separate order sets when using ketamine for status. One of the other differences is that we dose ketamine for status, or at least the way it's been published in the literature, as migs per kilo per hour, whereas um, we might be used to seeing it as mics per kilo per minute for other settings. Okay. Uh, So suffice it to say, the dose that's used for ketamine in this patient population, the the data would suggest that very aggressive dosing is more predictive of a positive outcome versus kind of the more traditional or even lower doses. Yes. Okay. Do we have any other data in terms of success rates with ketamine? So there's lots of other smaller studies. Uh, One interesting review, Zeller and colleagues actually published a systematic review. So they took all of the patients that received ketamine and they looked at lot of different factors, including time to ketamine administration. And this varies greatly. And this is actually something we have to think about when we look at outcomes. So patients in all of these studies were either started very early, like within 16 hours, so less than a day, or up to 140 days, really showing that this is being used as salvage therapy. And then the duration of ketamine also varied. The patients were either on it for just a couple of hours up to almost uh, a month at 27 days, the average being about seven days. The response time varied, so some patients responded right away. Others took up to 72 hours to respond. But overall, when they sort of combined all these studies together, they saw a 
success rate of 56.5%. So that proportion of patients actually had cessation of status. It's really difficult, obviously, to interpret these results. These are patients who are super refractory. So all of their other drips are also being titrated. They're on concomitant drips, such as pentobarb, midazolam, or propofol. Sometimes they're on more than one of those drips. And then they have anti-epileptics that are also being added, bolus, and titrated. But considering that the response rate in super refractory status is so low, this is definitely encouraging information that supports consideration of ketamine in these algorithms. And certainly for the listeners, a 56% success rate doesn't seem very good, but I'm sure, Corinne, you could kind of speak to it that the success rate in general for this disease state is not very good. And especially picking out this kind of sickest of the sick patient population within status, that's actually a really good uh, success rate then, right? Absolutely. And the other issue when we're treating status epilepticus, unlike other conditions where we hope to see a response quickly, there's not a defined futility timing for status. So some patients have actually been in status for months and months and have been able to be successfully treated um, and actually are discharged home from the ICU. So what you're saying is that there's really no time where after a certain period of time, the patient is thought to kind of be refractory and that they have no chance of recovery. This is kind of unique in the ICU in that these patients presumably or potentially could be continued for weeks or even longer on drug therapy until success happens. And That's absolutely true. And sometimes we're also just buying time so that we can try to determine what the etiology of status was for the patient. It sounds like the data are fairly promising. Clearly, it's preliminary and mostly based on kind of a case series and things like that. What are some of the big limitations that the audience should be aware of before they're reaching for ketamine as soon as they see that status patient uh, rolling into the ICU? Well, I think um, one of the main limitations is that these studies are retrospective. And so there's probably a strong publication bias of publishing these really positive results and perhaps not publishing maybe some of the negative results. Also, like I mentioned before, Uh, Ketamine was added as an adjunct to other continuous infusions while other medications were also being uptitrated. So it's really hard to say, to make a causal association and say that these patients responded because the ketamine was added. Perhaps other things were also going on at that time. And then finally, a lot of these patients were in super refractory status and the ketamine was started after multiple other agents. So it doesn't really speak to the efficacy of perhaps starting ketamine earlier before there's that increase in NMDA receptors on the synaptic membrane. You know, even with those limitations, given the kind of disease state we're talking about, and also the fact that ketamine doesn't have a very negative side effect profile, something like PRIS or, uh, you know, cardiovascular collapse, it seems like a fairly simple add-on to at least attempt for a patient. And if you can believe any of the success rates or, at a minimum, the improvement in vasopressor utilization, that seems like a fairly big win for a drug that at least in this disease state, we're unlikely to see a lot of side effects from the drug therapy. I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, unfortunately, we don't have prospective trials, but we really don't have those trials for a lot of the other treatments we use for refractory status epilepticus. I think that particularly patients who have failed one continuous infusion, and certainly for patients where you've switched perhaps from midazolam to propofol, and maybe they're failing propofol, and those who are requiring vasopressors, Ketamine might be an interesting agent to try, both for its potential success rate and also maybe as a pressor-sparing therapy before even going to pentobarbital. 
So to kind of wrap up this section, I think it's very interesting and hopefully we'll get more data in the future. Um, if you were to have a patient who progressed from midazolam to propofol and now is on pentobarbital, on vasopressors, A, would you consider ketamine? And then B, would, what dose would you pick? And then how would you titrate that dose? So I think at that point, I would have to look at all their antiepileptics. Most patients are going to require at least three AEDs, but often more than that to control their status epilepticus uh, and make sure their antiepileptics were appropriately titrated and the levels uh, were therapeutic and make sure the workup has been done for other causes of status, such as drug toxicity, um, metabolic disturbances, infection, tumors, things like that. What Once it's uh, really been determined that the patient does need another agent, I think ketamine would be a good option here. My recommendation is to always give a bolus. Our protocol recommends 1.5 mg per kilo bolus, which you can repeat in three to five minutes, and we make the repeat three doses. And that was kind of in line with that second trial that used a max of five mg per kilo as a bolus. If you do start ketamine, uh, I would probably start it at one or two mg per kilo per hour. And then again, as the uh, neuro ICU attendings are reading the continuing CEG, if the patient is still seizing, we would always bolus and increase the infusion rate. And I think having a goal of trying to get to 10 mg per kilo per hour is very reasonable if you're already at the point where now you're adding ketamine on top of a pentobarbital failure. I think that's really good advice, and I think certainly as more data is available, the entire community is very interested in knowing what is the role of ketamine, how is it dosed, uh, and even when to initiate it. Well, you know, to kind of wrap things up then, did you have kind of one or two take-home points that you would want the listeners to remember from today's discussion about status epilepticus and ketamine in general? So I think the takeaway principles from treating status epilepticus in general, my four principles are be aggressive, be fast, individualize therapy, and monitor. And so when we talk about be aggressive, this is really utilizing appropriate weight-based bolus dosing. For example, one gram of phenytoin does not fit all, really reaching uh, those therapeutic serum concentrations and possibly even having more frequent titration than you would normally being fast, so adding on additional therapies very quickly. This is not a case where we think about polypharmacy. This is where we want to be very aggressive and add on therapies sequentially one right after the other until we really get seizure cessation. And then individualizing therapy, because we don't really know which drug is better than the other, um, you can consider patients with liver failure, patients who are, have interacting medications, patients who are not intubated, and uh, alter and individualize your treatment algorithm accordingly. And finally, monitoring. So thinking about your target levels and really hitting the upper limit of normal for those. Also, aside from levels, things like LFT, creatinine, triglycerides, obviously looking at the continuous EEG to make sure that you're titrating your medications appropriately. And when you think about ketamine within your algorithm, I think we don't really know the role Many institutions don't actually include ketamine within their guideline or protocol, but I think that there probably is a place for ketamine in those very refractory patients that we spoke about. And just make sure that if you are using this medication, you're bolusing and you're titrating to uh, appropriate infusion rates. Well, Dr. Berger, I really appreciate your time. I think that's an excellent review of, of the use of ketamine as well as refractory status epilepticus. And thank you for the audience for joining us today. This does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. Uh, if you have topics or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet us your input at SCCM and be sure to use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's VCCR 
O-U-N-D-S. And for the VC Sierra Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.